Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do ask for You to be present as we uh, have read Your Word and now I uh, stand to proclaim it. I ask that uh, You would help me to uh, faithfully uh, proclaim the grace of the Lord Jesus in all His glory. I ask in His name. Amen. In our culture, the corrosion of truth is an enormous problem. The idea that there is a fixed, absolute truth which applies to all people is widely rejected today. The Barna Research Group, which is a Christian research and opinion poll, has done survey after survey, year after year, about how Americans think about different issues. And they have concluded that churches are awash with relativism. And it is trending toward a greater belief in relativism and further away from biblical, objective, absolute truth. I would suspect that many Christians would say that they reject relativism. Yet as you press them you might very probably find that they have a squishy, unfixed view of truth. For instance, they may claim to believe in truth, but would be unwilling to insist that there is only one truth that all people must believe. Jesus believed in a fixed, objective, absolute truth. He proclaimed it without shame, without hesitation, or without equivocation. When asked about His teaching, He spoke openly and said that He, said that he had said nothing in secret. He spoke about Himself in His ministry. He spoke about His relationship with His Father in His ministry. He spoke about mankind's sinfulness in His ministry. And He spoke about... Um, the salvation that could only be obtained through Him. He made it clear that He was the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that no man comes to the Father except through Him. He was in no way squishy in His belief or in His presentation of the truth. The corrosion of truth and relativism in our culture is a big problem. But that's not to suggest that the previous cultures were any more committed to the truth. Every culture, every society has been uncommitted to the truth. The only difference between our culture and previous cultures is that our culture foolishly believes that relativism has given us a free pass to reject the concept of truth. The reason all cultures and societies have been uncommitted to truth and the reason why our culture so badly wants to embrace relativism is that we really don't love truth. We want to live like we want to live. Uh, We want to live without the restraint of truth to rein us in. We want to be free to lie to others so that we can manipulate others, so that we can protect our sinful practices, and so that we can pursue our own desires. 
without any interference from any kind of truth. One of my children told me one time when I caught her in a lie, um, and it wasn't Abby since she's here, so it was one of those other two that are that are not here. Um, <laughs> but but uh, this, my daughter told me uh, when I caught her in a lie, she said, teenagers lie to their parents. That's just what teenagers do. You know, she sounded like one of those Geico commercials. You know, if you're a cat, you ignore people. That's what you do. But if you want to say 15% on, uh, no person really believes in relativism. It would be impossible for them to function if they rejected truth. And they would be rejecting all forms of science if they rejected truth. Consistently, They would be rejecting all standards of, of measurement if they rejected truth. They would be rejecting all morality, all forms of right and wrong. A person cannot live, a person cannot function in a vacuum of truth. There was an American music composer and, and philosopher named John Cage. He believed that the universe is impersonal by nature and that it originated by pure chance. That, I guess, the Big Bang happened by pure chance. And because there is no Creator, therefore, of course, all nature is impersonal, and uh, everything that happens is simply happenstance or chance. He sought to express his uh, view of reality in his music. So what he did was he composed his music uh, using the um, using the concepts of pure chance. In other words, he would roll his di- roll the dice or flip a coin to decide uh, which um, which choice of musical note and where that musical note would be. Uh, it was all random. The result was that his music had no form had no structure, and I would imagine had no appeal. <laughs> Dale, what would you think about it? <laughs> that would just be torturous, I would imagine, for you with your trained ear to listen to that. But in his personal life, John Cage grew mushrooms as a hobby. And of course, if you don't know which mushrooms are poisonous, and you pick them and you eat them, randomly, you're going to soon die because many mushrooms are poisonous. You have to make a distinction. So he did not, of course, pick the mushrooms to eat with the same view of reality that he was espousing uh, by his profession as a musician. All self-professed relativists are hypocrites. There can be no such thing as a half-relativist. Well, there's some truth over here, but there's no truth over here. And, well, we get to decide what we want to be truth. I know a lot of people believe that, but it doesn't hold water. Either truth exists or it does not. The concept of relativism is a bogus word that has been invented to hide from the truth. The trial of Jesus before Annas was a bogus court 
that was assembled in order to hide the religious leaders' conspiracy to murder Jesus. Truth and justice were empty words on that night in that court. First of all, Annas, who is spoken of here in our passage, he very likely had no standing in this court. First of all, the court was held in his home, and he was not the high priest. We know from historical record that Annas served as the high priest in Israel from the year 7 A.D. to the year 14 A.D. And after that, well, and so by the time uh, he is presiding over this trial with Jesus being there, it's been nearly 20 years since he's been the high priest. In the meantime, five of his sons succeeded him as high priest, one after the other after the other. And now, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest. So Annas, having served almost 20 years ago as the high priest, all of his sons succeeding him, and now his son-in-law, he was certainly a very powerful man. Certainly, because his son succeeded him, and now his son-in-law, he exercised total influence over the high priesthood. But he had no right to preside over a judicial court that was meeting at 4 a.m. This is right in the middle of the night uh, when this court is meeting. And then, as you look at this passage, you'll notice that no charges were brought against Jesus. He was placed on trial without any formal charges being laid against Him. In in fact, the trial was an attempt to manufacture some charges to bring against Him. Uh, look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. No charges are brought. Jesus is brought in, and the high priest wants to question Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. That's why Jesus refused to give an answer. He was not going to give any legitimacy to this bogus court. He's being questioned, but he hasn't been charged. He's being held but he hasn't been charged. He was arrested, but he hasn't been charged. Jesus had no legal obligation to testify against himself, and so he did not. The um, I'm looking here. I'm sorry, one second. Felt like I was missing a page. Um, so Jesus, uh, in um, not testifying, he is uh, he's doing what was certainly his right. In fact, it, what was right for him to do on that night. Even though the term relativism was not in use um, in that court, there was a hatred of the truth that was present in the hearts of the religious leaders who were putting Jesus on trial. And the hatred of truth spilled over in verse 22, spilled over into violence. So you see verse 22, 
when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus, um, or standing by, struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? One of the officers, probably a man acting as a bailiff, he did not like what Jesus had to say to the high priest. And Jesus essentially said, I'm not going to answer. Uh, verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So he refuses to answer. And there's this officer of the court much like what we would have a bailiff uh, in our courtroom. And the man struck Jesus. And he said, is that how you speak to the high priest? This man struck Jesus, no doubt, in an, in an attempt to please his superiors. He knew how badly the religious leaders hated Jesus. He knew his actions would not be rebuked, but would rather surely meet with their approval. But let's examine a little more closely what the, what the bailiff did. He struck Christ while he was on trial. He struck Jesus in open court right in front of Annas, who was presiding as the judge. Remember, no evidence has been brought. No charges have even been presented. And Annas, presiding as judge, does not rebuke this bailiff. This illustrates just how unjust the whole trial really was and how little regard there was for the truth in that room that night. Now Jesus did act in, an, in a rather unexpected manner. Jesus' whole ministry was filled with incidents where people were mistreating Him. Yet He never opened His mouth in resentment. He was oppressed and He was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the way he conducted his ministry. But this time, he does open his mouth. And he says in verse 23 to this bailiff who struck him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Why does Jesus reply when it was His habit to remain silent when He was being um, mistreated? I think the reason He spoke up is He was about to endure... Um, uh, well, He knew that His disciples following Him would endure uh, the very same treatment that He was enduring. Um, one commentator, uh, I think, was right when he said it could Christ could well have borne uh, being struck without opening his mouth, but foreseeing, but foreseeing that many of his people would afterwards be subjected to wrongs like this, he resented and rebuked it that they might know what his feelings were and how they should act amid wanton outrage and gross injustice. And so he spoke up and spoke out and rebuked the bailiff. What's even more remarkable is Jesus is going to be treated um, 
with many more blows, with much greater severity in the coming hours as the uh, guards beat him, as the guards whipped him, as the guards pressed down that uh, crown of thorns on his head. And then those nails driven through his hands and through his feet. And he did not make any objection through it all. You know, I imagine most of you still some sense of animosity toward this bailiff for striking Jesus for no reason. In fact, I feel some animosity towards him. But I also feel sorry for the man. This man struck the king of the universe. Um, Can you imagine what was going through this man's mind after he died and found out that this man whom he struck, whom he spoke so rudely to, and found out that this man was the King of kings and the Lord of lords? While our feelings of animosity are kindled against this bailiff, I want to ask you some questions. How many times have you raised your hand to the Lord Jesus Christ? Not to physically strike Him, but to give yourself to sin in rebellion to Him. The bailiff, he acted rashly because he was motivated by zeal to please Annas and the religious leaders. But how many times have you planned out your sin and acted upon it with fully settled intentions. The bailiff only struck Jesus once. But how many times have you, as a professing Christian, persisted in striking blow after blow as you practice your pet sin? In effect, when we do that, we are trampling the Lord Jesus Christ underneath our feet. The bailiff struck Jesus in ignorance. We don't have any doubts about Jesus' identity, yet we willingly and willfully raise our hands to Him because we love our sin more than we love Him. If this is you, I implore you, don't raise your hand against Him to give yourself to sin. Rather, extend your hand to Him in repentance. Confess your sins and seek His forgiveness. He is willing to forgive. How do I know? Because I know what happened after this trial. I know what happened when this show trial ended. I know what the Lord Jesus endured for sinners. Christ faced three more show trials that that night um, as night turned into, um, into the early morning. And He was finally judged to be guilty even though there was no evidence to prove it. And in between trials, He was beaten by the guards. He was whipped savagely. The whips had had pieces of bone in the end of them so that it dug into His skin uh, every time He was whipped. And He was made to wear a crown of thorns. And then He was taken to the cross. And on the cross, That's where our Lord Jesus was really struck. He was struck again, but this time, not with the hand of man, but with the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And He did that 
because He loved us. He became sin for us. God the Father struck the Lord Jesus because of our sin. Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was punished in our place. It was the will of God to crush Him according to Isaiah 53 and to put Him to grief because Christ offered Himself up as a guilt offering for the guilt that we should have owned. He took our guilt by taking our sin upon Himself. He took the blows of God's justice for us. So, if you have your hand raised against Jesus, if you have your sins that you are unwilling to repent of, or if you're saying, well, maybe tomorrow, or maybe later, or maybe when the Lord moves in me, I want to ask you, how could you wait or put off repentance when Christ has done this for you? The greatest blow that you could strike against Christ is to be slow in your repentance and to think it matters very little to Christ whether you repent or whether you turn to Him. Jesus loves sinners. He paid a heavy, heavy price to redeem sinners. Flee to Him now. And I want to uh, remind you, there is no such thing as relativism. And some of you may have be tempted to have a relativistic uh, response to Jesus. Well, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe there is no truth. Maybe there is no God. And so you put off the response. Don't put off the response. Don't raise your hand against Jesus. Extend it to Him in submission and ask for His forgiveness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You endured shameful things for us. You endured this show trial, this kangaroo court for us in order that You might be found guilty by unrighteous men who had no evidence. You who knew no sin became sin for us so that in You we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, Father, I pray that You would blow through this sanctuary by Your Spirit. Grant repentance. Grant faith. Turn all of our hearts to the Lord Jesus because His heart is ever and always turned toward us. We pray in His name. Amen.